there is a significant difference with respect to this issue that you just hit on between family court and Supreme Court because of the method in which the, the kind of decisions are made in each of the courts. Now, in family court, it's very, very common for the judges just to make verbal or you know verbal decisions based on oral applications of attorneys saying hey judge i want this to happen you know no motions which is what motions are written written requests of the judge to do something which are have to be responded to in writing argued and judge decide so it's a boom 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 process a little more deliberative right in these in, in family court you can expect things to change radically just based on lawyers asking for it wow. and these decisions like that life-changing decisions really you know it's it's incredible so to the extent there's a risk the risk occurs because of a failure of the application of the process hi i'm rachel green brooklyn-based divorce mediator and collaborative attorney and this is my podcast keep the kids in mind Join me as I chat with other industry professionals about everything from smoothly navigating your way through divorce to prenups, all the while keeping the kids in mind. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming in to listen to another episode of Keep the Kids in Mind, uh, a podcast where we explore how separation and divorce affects um, children and how uh, you can choose processes and and do things to try to protect them. I am very happy to have John Yakos as our guest. John is one of my favorite litigation attorneys in the matrimonial area. He's a lifelong New Yorker with over 30 years of legal experience. He was selected for 2020 New York State Super Lawyers. He's also the director and co-founder of the Brooklyn chapter of the National Association of Divorce Professionals and serves on the board of directors of Family Kind, a nonprofit organization that provides supportive services on a sliding scale to families. John Kick started his legal career litigating child abuse and neglect cases and then represented children in contested custody litigation at the Children's Law Center in Kings County. So he's really seen a wide spectrum of ways that um, divorce can affect children. And fun fact, the first judge he appeared before was Judge Judy, who was a family court judge at the time. I didn't even realize that she had been a real judge, oh, yeah. a TV judge. I'll tell you a little bit of the story there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting, actually. Well, welcome, John. Rachel, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I have to say, uh, Rachel and I, actually uh attended the same law school together although we didn't know each other we were there at the same time we did yep and then um we got to know each other uh very well through the national association of divorce professionals as we were both members of the brooklyn chapter and uh i really uh and rachel is uh i guess the the original mediator from the what i would say brownstone brooklyn community uh and rachel I, I really really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you today yeah, I was I was the first full time mediator in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, I, I was that for about five years. And then Jessica Rothberg opened her practice. So uh -huh. then there were two of us. But you were the uh, OG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, John, what are common issues that parents should consider during a divorce? Right. So um, and again, thank you very much for this. Um, you know, one of the I think in terms of m m limiting the damage to children in the process is to keep them out of the process to the full extent possible, right? 
And as an attorney who worked at the Children's Law Center, I represented children. And I was in court all day, every day, pretty much on multiple cases. So I had a firsthand view of really what it was like for the children to experience because I had the opportunity to talk with the children about what they were going through as their attorney. Um, and I think the, the, from, a, from a, a psychological, emotional, uh, ethical and moral uh, and also legal standpoint, uh, one of the points you, that people should think about if they're involved in e any of this, mediation, litigation, um, is to make sure that you do not beat up or bash the other parent to the children, right? And the significance of that, I'll take it from the legal perspective. The significance of that is that um, people may be aware of the concept, this vague notion of the best interest of the children, right? And it's a floating uh, concept. It, it really has no set um, definition in the law. It's purely based on case law, which are individuals' cases. And it's about 20 different factors that shift over time because the specifics of the cases shift. I would have to say the most significant factor that's really popped up in recent years is, is this. Does a parent actively promote the relationship between the child or children and the other parent? Mm -hmm. And that's not a passive thing. We just I'm not going to talk about it. It's definitely not you know, negative, talking negatively about the parent or doing things that are antithetical to right. the relation. It's actually, you actually have an affirmative duty to promote the relationship between the ch child or children and that other parent. So and you're saying a lot of, you're saying a lot of things. So I just want to make sure I and our listeners are following. So, I mean, the best interest of the children is kind of the standard in the courts for, um, you know, for making decisions about the children. Right. But as you say, it's kind of a squishy, subjective standard, really. Um, but some of the things that are not squishy and subjective are um, promoting a relationship with the other parent. You know, is this is this parent who's before you um, accepting of the fact that I don't want this person, you know, I don't want my ex in my life at all, but he or she is always going to be my children's other parent. And am I able to be supportive of it, like from the children's eyes, instead of just being tied up in my own feelings about my ex, um, you know, distinguishing those those two things. And then um, uh, there was one other thing you said that I wanted to catch on to, but it just flew out of my head. So I'll I'll think of it. Well, you know, that's a that's a key consideration. You know, you really just want to make sure that. Um, everything you do is you're putting the children first, right? I mean, the two keys to this concept in terms of minimizing the harm to children is really, um, one, above anything else, you put the children's uh, consideration and, and uh, needs above your even your own with respect to the litigation. So that's I think that's really difficult for a lot of people yeah. to do. It, um, it's challenging, but if you're striving right. for it and you're aware of it, at least. Right. Because, you know, you, you enter into this process and we're talking about people who are either contemplating separation or separating or getting divorced or however they're going to structure, you know, their their future. Um, as as you said, Rachel, uh, most importantly, you're still going to have a relationship with that other person through the children. Right. And that's really super significant that the children see 
that you are, you know, can, can work with the other parent because children, you know, children hate to be put. And this is, again, my professional experience interviewing all these hundreds of children, if not thousands. Um, they hate to be put in the middle, right? Yeah. And when, you know, parents are pulling at them, you know, telling them all sorts of stuff. Uh, during this process, it really, really uh, is uh, something that is very detrimental, psychologically detrimental. Yeah. It causes so much anxiety, manifest in all sorts of other psychological aspects, like depression or, or, or you know, just school. Yeah. You know. Oh, now, yeah. Now, John, you froze for me for a second. Okay. Um, now you're back. Yeah. Okay. Um, I. That that's the other thing that I was that I wanted to mention that you I heard you say is the best thing you can do for your children is to keep them out of it. Right. Um, I was working with a couple a few uh, months ago, and um, I mean one thing that I I mean I know that one thing that psychologists recommend is that you not talk to the children until um, until the parents have like kind of everything mapped out like you know, mama's going to move. Uh, she has this apartment. You're going to see her, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays and right. every other weekend, wh you know, whatever, whatever the arrangements are, yep. um, you're going to have a bedroom in that apartment. We can go walk over right now and see it, you know, as much as you can have worked out before you even talk to the children. And I, I brought this up as an issue with a couple I was, I was working with in mediation and they said, Oh, they stopped me like mid sentence. And they were like, Oh, our kids know way too much about our, our conflicts and our right. divorce. This, this train has already left the station. There's nothing yep. to say. And I just, I just got like a sick feeling, you know, thinking about these poor kids because this couple really is very high conflict. And, you know, and I thought, Oh my God, they're fighting like this in front of their kids. They, they just haven't been able to help themselves. Right. So those poor kids are going to just have, you know, scars for, for many years. Right. And one thing that I think parents don't credit their own children, frankly, is how smart kids are. Right. Even really young kids hear if they hear something, if they see something they're they are internalizing it. They are taking it in and it comes out, you know, like I said, even young kids. And when if you're discussing these issues, even in a civil tone, children will know it. If you're fighting, that's even worse. Right. I think, Rachel, your, your point is extremely well taken. And one one thing that I didn't mention is that even though I'm you know trained as a litigator, I'm extremely uh, mediation friendly or alternative dispute resolution friendly because I find how uh, in a how poor it is to go through a litigation process, poor in the sense that you're leaving decisions up to a third party stranger. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It, it doesn't necessarily increase the problems. But all of these other things create further issues with respect to, you know, how much how much time and money and the potential for bringing in the children, which I haven't discussed yet in terms of how children may be involved in litigation. Um, that's why I think what what you said, Rachel, is right on. If you I would highly recommend to anyone listening, attempt mediation first, do not, you know, and, and try to resolve all these issues and. Uh, discuss all the issues that perhaps could be or need to be presented to children at some point appropriate time and plan on the method by which the children, you know, with the mediator, with a, a couple's counselor, psychologist, how children will be uh, told about these things, because that impact 
is life changing. You know, I mean, if you think about put yourself in the, the shoes of a little kid, you know, and your parents are separating, you know, uh, the implications are 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 life altering, really. Yeah. You know, so, so you really want to make sure that that's that's happening. Now, an interesting thing that happens also is that sometimes children, even young children, again, they will they will be curious and ask parents about issues that are going on that they see with respect to this, or even if it's kind of open that the parties are separate, separating or separated, getting divorced or whatever the situation is, the curious kids will start asking their parents questions. You know, that I get that a lot from my clients, hmm. you know, mitigating the, the relationship between the kids in this process. You know, I suggest to my clients, you know, just tell the kids basically, you know, this is an issue that it's an adult issue. Mommy and daddy are trying to work it out. You know, you know, like sort of, you know, don't really like tell them, well, Johnny, this is what's happening with us. And this is what I think. This is what your mom or dad thinks. Right, right. You know, don't like, give them don't, that don't much information. To, you know, you got to take away because they're I, I mean, I'm not a psychologist at all. But, you know, I, I know uh, just based on what I've, you know, my experience is that these kids are going to at some level feel like they're responsible for what happened. Right. They're going to feel like yes. I'm. The I, I always tell, yeah, I always tell clients that I say you can never say it in, you know, enough times <laughs> every two yeah. or three months. You should say, by the way, you know, you didn't do anything that caused us to separate. You didn't do anything, you know, because children internalize. They think if I only, um, you know, picked up my dirty socks from the floor, mommy and daddy wouldn't have separated. You know, they got so angry at me for keeping my playroom a mess or not doing my homework right away. And it's my fault. And I think they do. I think they do internalize it. Right. And that was told to me directly by many children frequently, you know, that concept where they felt they took on some personal responsibility for what was happening. And mm -hmm. again, not a psychologist, but, you right. know, I'd always have to tell them exactly what you were saying that, you know, it's yeah. not, it's not no, you. I had, a, I had a couple once um, who said to me, um, they had their um, intimate life had ended, you know, several years earlier. Right. So they felt like, well, we don't really have a real marriage. We're like roommates, you know, and they right. weren't, they didn't have active fighting. And they said, well, we feel it's important to, to um, separate because we think our kids, you know, they, on some level, they know that we're not having sex. And I was like, what? Like their kids were six and eight, like wow. prepubescent. Right. I was like, you think your kids know? Like oh. I was going, you're you're dreaming. I mean, there, you know, I've seen parents like there are many. I've seen many situations where parents who are not actively fighting, like not screaming at each other and throwing right. things. You know, right. if there's not active fighting in the world, children are very egocentric. They're like they're tied, they're tied up with their own things. You know, their their school, their friends, their homework, their like like, and they 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 feel like their parents are their parents. You know, they're they're just there in the background. Yeah. And um, I was like, your kids don't you know know like that's the reason that you're separating because you yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so so also in terms of how it plays out in, in litigation, right? Again. I'm super big proponent of mediation specifically to, to deal with these issues. But if parties end up in litigation, um, there's a lot of different ways where it has an impact with the children. Uh, now, some parents think that, 
if they're assigned an attorney, as I was at one point, an attorney for children, that's going to be really a detrimental and, um, you know, tra tra traumatic event. Um, I really didn't find, I think kids are a little bit more resilient than most parents think about this. And, you know, I tried my best to make it, uh, you know, something that was uh, a little, you know, smoother and easier for a kid to deal with. You know, so it, it can't, depending upon a child's age, if you are litigating, it is very possible. And usually it's about five or six for most judges. Um, your, your child may be assigned an attorney to talk to them. Um, in rare, rare cases where there's disputes on lit, uh, custody and they cannot be resolved, there are times when children are actually brought into court and um, have a meeting with a judge. Right? Would and a child as young as five or six be asked to come have a meeting with judge or is it only older? Sometimes it's a pretty, you know, I've, I've had that. It's called an in-camera or for lawyers, a Lincoln hearing, um, you know, and sometimes they do it with children as young as that. It's a little rare. The problem with, um, you know, some of the, the, the litigation processes you get judges who don't necessarily uh, have background in, you know, this area and family law generally because of the way the system works. So they don't really they're not really fine tuned with respect to these uh, subtle but significant issues concerning what's appropriate with this or not. So some, I've been I've been assigned on cases when I was an attorney for children for, you know, children who are infants, preverbal, you know, and basically the judges at that point are looking for cover. Right. They want to oh, oh, they're, they're judge. In I the see. Room. So they're they're just assigning an attorney for the child so that they they feel like they made some kind of gesture toward having the child's voice or the child's right. and, best and, interest evaluated by somebody else. Right. And, you know, I, I just as on this point, it's really I, I think it's interesting myself, but I call the phenomena the tail wagging the dog because you have this little kid sometimes telling his attorney what they want. And if the child is old enough as an attorney for children, you can either, you know, do best interests, right. Or straight advocacy, or you can substitute judgment. Right. And if a child, if, if a child is old enough, you do what's called straight advocacy, meaning you're just, you're just a lawyer for a client and you push that, you know, zealously with the court system. The other isn't, that, isn't the child going to feel terribly guilty if he or she says, this is what I want. Like, aren't they going to feel really guilty toward the other parent? Um, you know, uh, it's it, it, we're, we're getting into like the area of how you advocate for a child, how you interview a child. So, uh, you know, part of the interview process is you don't you never ask a child. You don't ask leading questions. You don't you know, you just sort of talk um, and it comes out. Kids love to tell you stuff. Right. You know, I love talking. I love talking to children. Um, but you know, they'll, they'll tell you things, but you never say like, who do you want to live with your mom or your dad? You know, yeah. Kind of who do you like but, but it comes out and, and basically what you're trying to do is, um, find out from a child in terms of the interview process, you're trying to find out from a child what their, um, you know, what their life is like with each of the parents, who the parents are, what their the parents' strengths and weaknesses are as parents, you know, and, and kind of get a more, uh, comprehensive view of, you know, what they're, what, what, what's in the children's best interest as opposed to something like that. And by the way, you know, sometimes, you know, parents will always tell you, you know, the other parent is talking to the kid and telling him to tell, tell you stuff. But a lot uh, of times, so sometimes when kids come in, they are actually told by the parents to say something to me. 
you know, in that capacity. And you could see and it, their anxiety levels at the very beginning are tremendous. They're just sort oh. of like filled with anxiety and, and this kind of nervous energy and they just spill right off the bat. And you kind of know from that. Right, that, right. That I see. Like, it's like they've been rehearsing a speech and they have to like. Ah. Exactly. And they, they just want to get it out, you know? Yeah. And get it done. Like, okay. You know, I told my speech. Now I can relax. Right. Exactly. And then the, then the energy level and the anxiety subsides a little bit and they become a little more relaxed and you can just talk, 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 talk. You know, and sometimes you, I, I, sometimes I would ask, you know, um, did your mom or your daddy want to ask, you know, have, have, have you tell me something? You know, mm, just to yeah. put it out there. Right. Because, oh, yeah, my mommy, you know, you, they, these kids don't know. They, they'll tell you right. that. You know, like they'll, they'll say that, you know, that's who it is. Yeah. Um, you well, know, when you're the attorney for the child, do you have any conversations with the parents? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the protocol for the agency that I worked with, which is Children's Law Center, was that you would meet with your client, obviously, the child or children, and you would meet with both parents and you'd meet with all the collaterals, right? So from that standpoint, um, you, you, your obligation as an what attorney- do you mean, What do you mean by the collaterals? Right. So, um, you know, depending upon the facts of the case, you would want to talk to the school, talk to the pediatrician, talk to if there oh, were therapists uh, involved, if other people were, family members were involved. You know, sometimes parents lived with other people and you want to talk to them like the, you know, a uh, new spouse, perhaps they might be remarried, you know, things like that. So your obligation as an attorney for the child is really um, a mandate for comprehensive information like you as any lawyer, you need to know everything. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was a quite interesting experience um, just to, to go on to further, you know, potentially damage to a child, and I'm air quotes damage, damage to a child in the litigation process, uh, common, uh, a common experience for people who are in, you know, contested custody litigation is that there may be a forensic evaluation. A lot of people may not know that. And that's an assigned, usually psychologist could be social worker or could, in certain cases, psychiatrist who does a written report uh, and it's a lengthy written report based on interviews, based on document review, based on psychology. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard they can be like between 50 and 100 pages. Yeah, they can be. They could be, you know, like they have to be, you know, fairly comprehensive. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, I guess you could say what you need to say in less than 30. But, you know, really the amount of information that's provided in a forensic evaluation is tremendous. So they also meet... So Children. Those are done when the parents are really arguing about custody, about the children's schedules. Yeah, you try to avoid it. And basically, it's uh, determined deep, deep into the process where you think you're going to go to trial. So yeah, it, I see. There is case and, law. That and that, that costs a lot of money. Too. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It's tremendously expensive. It takes like, a long time. It could be like $75,000. It could be. But, you know, like it's it's interesting because you hear if you talk to like Manhattan lawyers versus Brooklyn lawyers or other boroughs, you know, you'll get different reads on how expensive, but definitely tens of thousands. It's tens of thousands. Yeah, definitely yeah. tens of thousands. And yeah. oh, again, boy. very intrusive. And in terms of the harm to the children, um, you know, they are interviewed by the forensic evaluator. So oftentimes the forensic evaluator may visit the home or have them come in with the parent just to see the interaction right. with the parent at least. Right. So there is involvement with the children on that front, too. So, again, in the litigation process, you have one, 
the attorney for the child potentially too. You have a remote, but still possible potential for the child to come in and discuss the issues with the court. Three, you have the potential for the child to be involved in the forensic process. So again, above anything else, in terms of everything I've said, uh, in terms of uh, mediation or alternative dispute resolution, you know, this, this as, as, as part of litigation, the involvement of the child is should be considered in terms of trying, putting the children first and yeah. also trying to resolve things before you say, you know, screw this, we're just going to court. You know, that's what parents sometimes say. They're just fed up with, you know, trying to negotiate something and again, keep children and their, and their, their, you know, their, mental health more than anything else you yeah. know They're well you know i i mean i find the vast majority of people who choose mediation are choosing mediation for just that reason and like i would say the majority of my couple of my uh, families that i work with i mean not every family but yeah many of them um do not really have parenting conflicts like they they're right. they're like aligned in wanting to protect their children from the conflict arising out of the divorce and they, you know, they want to talk like out of earshot of the children in mediation about, right. um, you know, any decisions they have to make about the children. And they, you know, they, they're really like they come in with anxiety about how can we protect our children, which right. is for me, that's one of the most satisfying things, um, which is, I guess, why I called the podcast. Keep your kids in mind. I mean, it's one of the most like moving and satisfying parts of this work for me right. when I can help people do that, you know, and I can, we can talk about, um, okay, so this, you know, this thing is coming up, that's going to be a conflict. How can we shield our kids from our conflict? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I think one of the benefits of my practice and I, my practice is 100% matrimonial and family law. So this is all I do. Right. And one of the benefits of my specific form of my practice is I do a lot of work as a consulting attorney in mediation. Right. So there I get a, a good percentage of clients who are those types of people who are aligned with respect to how they view uh, going through this process and the, and the significance of how children might be impacted and they wanna protect and shield the children from it. And that is really satisfying that, that parents can do that. And then again, um, in terms of my practice, because I'm a litigator, I can continue, uh, if mediation doesn't work for whatever reason, I can continue to represent them in litigation. And in those cases, oftentimes there is some dis more, more contentious disputes with respect to custody as one issue. You know, one of the, one of the things that can be, uh, we, that we should talk about is the, inter, uh, the interconnectedness between uh, child support and custody as an issue and how that impacts children and the harm to children. Oh, and yeah. But, what, I, yeah. what I mean by that is that... Um, you asked your own question, so I never answer it. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Such an easy guest to have. Yeah, thank you very much. So, um, you know, so so it's, it's, it's relevant and important because child an obligation for a parent to pay child support is premised on at least for one aspect of child support is premised on who is the primary residential custodial parent so just as a background so people hear it uh there are two aspects of child this is like 30 seconds on child support two aspects of child support one is called basic child support and that's what most people think and that's based on who has primary residential custody and that's a there's a presumptive income calculation that's used to determine that and that's for food, clothing, shelter, generally speaking. 
The other side of child support is this thing called add-on expenses, and that's pro rata. It doesn't relate to who has residential custody. It's just an obligation based straightly straight on income. You know, so if one parent is making sixty thousand, the other is making forty thousand. The ratio for those add-on expenses are sixty thousand, sixty percent to the four, sixty percent, right? Yeah. Right, and that's for uh, child care, medical, could be extracurricular, could be summer camp, things like that, right? So. <clears throat> What ends up happening in terms of the interconnectedness between child support and custody is that oftentimes custody is used as a surrogate to uh, to address the child support issues. Right. So sometimes you'll get parents fighting over custody and parenting time and then, you know, causing more strife in the family and impacting the children because they're worried about an obligation on child support. Right. So if they know this often happens oftentimes with parents who are living together before they've separated, because before you separate, there really is no legal method by which, generally speaking, the court will allocate a residential or non-residential parent and therefore a child support obligation. So oftentimes parties, parties will parents will stay together, even though they know it's toxic. And the relationship is damaging, you know, the, the toxic relationship while they're together in this home is damaging the children. They won't separate because they don't want to establish who's the primary and who's not. Yeah. Right? So so as a result, um, you know, they'll they'll either stay together or they'll fight over custody. Right. And one thing the parties people should know about this, if you're thinking about this, is that even if it's 50 50, like a lot of times parents and, and, and consistent with the children's best interest, this might be true, that parties want to have uh, what they call equal parenting time, right? They want to have literally 50-50 of the residential parenting time. The What parties should know, just from a legal standpoint, is that if that is the case, the parent who makes more income is, is obligated to pay child support as if they are the weekend parent and only right. have... Friday, Saturday. Right. So therefore, there's also that component too. Yeah. My but I mean, in, in a negotiated settlement, you know, we can, we work that out in mediation. Usually right. we look at their expenses, their budgets, where they're going to be moving, right. um, you know, their, and they take into account their incomes as well. And, and just say, you know, how do you want to divide the expenses for the children? Um, and, you know, we talk about different options and, and they can come up with something that they feel is more fair. But, um, but, you know, I'm hearing you say, and I guess my observation has been that if they ended up in court, then higher earning parent is just going to pay 100% child support regardless of the schedule. Right. It depends on the uh, discretion of the court. The, the, oh. from, from an attorney standpoint, the, the case law holds. And I found more and more judges are just applying the case law, even though I don't think it's fair. Uh, the case law says that even if it's 50 50 the money spouse pays the full presumptive right. calculated amount which is really unfair because yeah. you, know, you have your own even if it's 50 50 as the money spouse you have your expenses and you're paying you know all of the money in terms of basic child support to the to the other parent who's also 50 50. you know they do have expenses. Yeah. and but, then in uh, new york city rents are so high i mean the difference between getting like you know a studio apartment which probably a parent could get Right. versus getting a two bedroom, you know, yep. um, the rents are just like astronomical. So right. the, you know, the more, the higher earning spouse may have more expenses. Right. And, and it's really not a fair, yeah, it's not. And this, this, is, this is a really, I mean, you really hit on yeah. a key 
point in terms of why mediation is so beneficial to parties, because in court, you know, you're at the discretion of this judge who's either going to apply this, from my perspective, unfair aspect of the law or what we call deviate and perhaps net out. Or what Rachel said was really, let's look at the expenses. Let's be practical and smart about this. And let's look at what's fair. And you have so much more flexibility with the mediation process in terms of, you know, crafting a, a resolution that makes sense than you do in litigation. Again, this is a key component with respect to minimizing the harm to the children, because this, again, uh, the, the support issue is tied into the custody issue and vice versa. There are, there's a, that interconnectedness. So you really want to use the resources of uh, a, someone like Rachel, who is going to really be um, helping you structure this because it's, it's, you, you could do it with lawyers, but it really takes a high level of cooperation in litigation with lawyers to do the same thing. And again, you want, you want parents to be talking to each other because they're going to have a life after we're gone out of their life. They're going to yeah. be together through the children for the rest of their life. So again, right. and, and isn't it nice if they can go to the high school graduation, you know, together right. and the uh, college graduation and, and the and even weddings high, and yeah, right. And even in high conflict situation, you yeah. know, again, I feel like I'm beating the drum a little bit here, but you know, the initial attempts to have those types of discussions directly with the assistance of a mediator is much easier than if you're talking through lawyers in a litigation yeah. process. Yeah. So that's, a, you know, you have that buffer in litigation that you yeah. don't have. And it's more natural, really. So, than talking so John, I, one, one question I, I'm curious about is just like, how often do you, do you have cases where you feel like, you know, you go to court? I mean, I guess most cases don't really end up in court, do they? Or, or maybe parts of them are decided by the judge and then you settle the rest or, but I'm wondering, like, how often you feel like, you know, boy, that really was a bad result. Like, you just feel like you know the case. I mean, the thing, you know, I find that people often have a fantasy that that the judge is going to hear them. And oh, yeah. See everything they suffered through and say, oh, my gosh, you you are the wronged person. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, um, the wise father that they never had is going to be this judge in court who's going to see them. And, you know, and my understanding is that the judges don't have the time to get or the interest in getting to know your clients the way that you know them. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, how often you feel like there really is like a, you know, miscarriage of, of justice in a certain way. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, unfortunately, um, okay, so a couple different basic concepts, one of which is uh, the court experience is not what people think it is. If pe you know, people think it's going to be like this TV thing where, you know, the judge is going to be deciding everything. And it's really not that at all if it's done properly. Right. But and when I say properly, if the judge applies the law and what the limitations of what they're supposed to do. And it's extremely frustrating for parties because people, you know, uh, I've had cases, Rachel, where people have agreements, right? Literally written agreements. And they say, oh, I want to go to the judge and, and tell them my story because they have to hear this. And it's like, but wait a second, we're done. You have an agreement already, right? So you don't have to, yeah. I want the judge to know this. I want the judge to know this. Like, uh, no, it's not going to happen. So they don't really understand you. I mean, part of my job is to really explore what the process is and explain every little detail because it's so 
confusing. I conceptualize it as a big black box that people enter into. And it's this thing that happens. I know it's in the black box and I know how much, uh, you know, how much I can tell them based on like what my experience is within a range of discretion of the court. And there's a tremendous amount of discretion. There's the law and the application of the law and the judge. So in terms of a miscarriage of justice, it happens, right? It is, I mean, it's deeply frustrating when certain uh, cases end up just wrong. And the, the way it ends up wrong is that usually it's a decision by a judge that is completely inconsistent with the process of the law, right? So for instance, they're making these judgments on custody, parenting time, and um, or support, which is which are totally not supported by the process because the process is supposed to be fair, due process, deliberative, you're supposed to have hearings for these things. And this you're, you're hitting on a really good point in terms of uh, the concept of miscarriage or the concept of discretion and the, the options that parties have. It's, it's really an important thing to understand is that even married people have the option to go to family court, right, for issues of child support or custody, which are heard by two different parties. Or if you're married and getting divorced, you can go to Supreme Court. Now, Supreme Court in New York is not the highest level court. It's another trial level right? But it's where people get divorced, right? right? And as an unmarried person, you're going to probably go to family court, although COVID, there was some push that unmarried people could go to Supreme Court too, because family court was closed basically for a long um, time. So yeah. that was a new new thing because of COVID. But um, there is a significant difference with respect to this issue that you just hit on between family court and Supreme Court because of the method in which the, the kind of decisions are made in each of the courts. Now, in family court, it's very, very common for the judges just to make verbal or, you know, verbal decisions based on oral applications of attorneys saying, hey, judge, I want this to happen. You know, no motions, which is what motions are written, written requests of the judge to do something which are have to be responded to in writing, argued and judge decide. So it's a boom, boom, boom process, a little more deliberative, right? In, these, in, in family court, you can expect things to change radically just based on lawyers asking for it. Wow. And to make these decisions like that, life-changing decisions, really. You know, it's, it's incredible. So to the extent there's a risk, the risk occurs because of a failure of the application of the process. And it, the other piece of it is that, um, unfortunately, because of resources, sometimes you'll, you'll get more uh, frequent turnover in family court of judges than you would in, say, Supreme Court, right? Supreme Court, they tend to stay a little longer. They have a little bit more experience, you know, because they've been there for years and years. So family court, a little less so. You know, they have great, great family court judges, really judges who are practitioners in this area who come and become family court judges. But and again, you have others who are not, who are just sort of there, you know, with no experience and they're learning on the job, literally. You know, no, that's where the risk is in terms of the miscarriage of justice. Are there um, any um, cases that have like haunted you that just went yeah, wrong? I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm really not going to identify who it is, but no, of course not. A case where um, it was a divorce, it was in Supreme Court, so it should have been. You know, the expectation is it's going to be done properly in terms of the process, right? Now, it was a, a, a judge who didn't really have much experience either in the law as a background, right? This person didn't really know the law. This judge this person was brand new and this person a lot of times when you get new judges this is just an insight experience i'm telling you about they put on a black robe and they feel like they need to they don't they're insecure themselves because they don't know what they're doing 
right? And they feel like I need respect. And therefore, the way I'm going to get respect is by ordering people to do stuff as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, thinking about it and being judicial and being, you know, con contemplative about what's going on and the impact of it. So it's really like they're kind of bullies almost in terms of like, hey, you're going to respect me because I got the black robe, right? So in this particular case, <clears throat> I was representing a husband. There's another attorney representing the wife. Um, the parties had not separated, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there was a motion before the court, but it wasn't fully briefed by that. I mean, they had made the motion, but it was done as like an emergency. And when you they go, didn't have time to really think about no, it and write a written no, argument, excuse me, they didn't have time to really think about it and write up a written argument. No, they, they did because they take all the time they want and they write up like 20 pages of it, like an affidavit, which is oh, a written, well. written statement. So they do that. And then they hit you and they call it an emergency and you don't get the papers until you show up, basically. You don't oh, know what oh I see. I see. And as a result, you show up. So nothing really should happen except the, the threshold for uh, granting emergency relief is very, very high. It has to be it should be something like abuse or neglect is going on or do, extreme domestic violence, things that are really light, almost life threatening. Right. Yeah. In this case. They made that application. This was the first time on. Usually you're just addressing what the immediate relief is. This judge in this case decided to, uh, because there are allegations that the parties were in strife, which is almost every case. Nothing from my perspective, nothing unusual in terms of divorce because this this judge really didn't have the experience. They read it and they, you know, again, I come, I come from a background where I'm used to child abuse cases. I, I used to, I have had cases where children have died where parents have died, you know, there's been fatalities. Um, yeah. Oh, how horrible. So, and, and that's true with a lot of attorneys and judges. So they, if you have enough experience, you've gone through this where there's been a serious, serious issues of, uh, you know, this, this nature violence, domestic violence, abuse, and so on. This judge didn't have that context. So they were, this judge was reading this, these papers and, seeing this stuff is like, okay, the parties are together. I'm going to, I'm going to kick out the father, my, the, the husband, my client right now, just like that, go find another place. And I'm going to award maintenance, which is another word for alimony right. and support without any real papers, you know, like what you have to do oh. with financial statements. It's called the statement of net worth. So the were these court. just temporary orders or were they like, they ended up being permanent orders? Well, uh, yeah, it's a good question, right? Temporary orders oftentimes become permanent orders because they just, yeah. you know, because, because, okay, you make a quote temporary order, your next court date is two months later. Right. right. And what happens then? It's sort of like, oh, that's in, you know, the past and you're doing Right. It. And you've that's already been doing it for months and months. Right. right. So, so not without any information, uh, the judge kicked out my client, awarded maintenance and child support at an extreme amount, which really kind of you know, really damaged. I mean, can you imagine if you're the children and daddy's got to go, like daddy leaves all of a sudden? Yeah. So for not, not a, a thought, well thought out reason at all. Not a, you yeah. know, just like not a reason that was really, um, you know, contemplated or, you know, again, it would have been great if they had your services as a mediator to talk about this stuff, because ideally what the party should do is really reach through mediation, reach a written agreement with respect to the immediate issues that allow them to separate. So what those are, again, um, I should, I'll tell you, when parents have children, you have to resolve in any divorce, whether it's agreement, which is agreements are 99% of the time, right? Yeah. Or a judge deciding you've got five issues, right? 
with children, custody, child support, maintenance, which is alimony, equitable distribution, which is the division of marital assets and liabilities, and the potential for council fees, right? So out of the five, five, you really have to uh, decide, you know, custody or parenting time to separate, and you need support. Could be maintenance and or child support. You don't need to do uh, equitable distribution. Property distribution. Or really, I mean, you could yeah. do council fees, but to really, you know, uh, appropriately, so everyone's comfortable with the concept of separating, so their the rights are going to be preserved to a certain degree. Get an agreement that allows them to separate. You know, it could be called a separation agreement, and it deals with parenting time, custody issues, and, right. and then right. you, you can do it, and that's the way to do it, not emergency. Yeah motions to a judge which is what happened with, so, with this outcome it's a, it was what a, happened with that family i mean did he he just moved down and he had no choice because the judge ordered oh, it so i then, did a really good job i got fired of course um, <laughs> you know which was yeah. you know uh, it was expected because it's like and it was no fault of mine right. we just we did a no, great well job. you had no control over it yeah and then he actually i think he wanted to come back to me later um but you know ultimately the case dragged on for about two years uh, more because I would have been in touch with him afterwards and he kept, you know, he was calling me, um, you know, it, it was never undone. That was the end of it. I mean, they were going to separate, but the, the fact that it was like, you know, pulling a bandaid off a scab, you know, a wound, as opposed to, you know, like letting it heal and trying right. to resolve things. It's, it was just so traumatic really. And that's why it stayed with me so yeah. much in terms of your, your, yeah, well, your, I'm trying to ask you, I'm trying to ask you about your worst experiences, you know, so. Yeah, 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 right, right. So, so that was in terms of a miscarriage, I mean, you know, I mean, my worst experiences, I can tell you lots and lots of more stories, but in terms of a miscarriage of next, justice. Next time you can come time, back. Right, right, right. But that was really, I think, something that stayed with me uh, for a long time. And then yeah. there's, there's a lot of other examples like that, where it's just like, um, you know, you have a range of expect, I, 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 one thing I tell my clients is that, you know, there's like um, the experience if you're in court is on a spectrum, right? So, um, and and I think it's like a in the middle is the application of what the law sort of says and the, and the application is by discretion of the court in the middle, right? And it's sort of like a black hole. So everyone who's out on the outsides of the uh, spectrum are being sucked into the middle, right? The whole process is we're going to get you to what the law generally provides. So if you maintain right. a position that's outside at the end of the spectrums, you're going to have a hard time fighting the gravitation to pull you into the middle, right? Yeah. So, so that you know, that is like what happens. So I try to articulate. I tell my clients that, and I tell them this is what's probably going to happen with a range of discretion, right? But then again, when you have these situations where a judge applies the law and it's just so aberrant, it's just like way off the charts. And it's like, how the hell did that happen? You know, yeah. like this yeah, yeah. is like, whoa, that's like crazy. You know, the same thing. Uh, I mean, just as a short story, I had a case this re uh, this this week. Uh, it was in a court called uh, Integrated Domestic Violence, and it's a it's a court in all the counties where um, they try to group together a case that may have a uh, a criminal component where one, you know, usually domestic violence where someone's been arrested. It might be a matrimonial, might be family court. So instead of like three or four judges, you get one judge, right? So in that case, even though it's a Supreme Court case and it should have a pro, the, the law applies to family court and Supreme Court. So I'm making a distinction that is true, but there shouldn't be. But this is right, a Supreme right, Court right. case. And you would think that the application of the law would, pre would prevail, right? But Again, it's one of the situations where you've got to just uh, where where the judge will entertain 
applications of custody, modifications of parenting time, like ad hoc, all these issues that are that usually are briefed in motion practice and papers. So you really have to like be careful because like anything and everything could come up in the course of that court appearance and a judge is making these snap decisions uh, on on monumental issues that are for children, you know, talk talk about the harm to children, life-changing decisions that are just being made. And Rachel, you're absolutely right that there are other things that are pulling the court. You know, administratively, they have they're overburdened in the terms of the number of cases. They don't have a lot of time to, you know, really sit down. And a lot of times they haven't read the papers and they'll say, like, no. okay, tell me about this. You know, so you got right. you know, you got it's I call it short attention span theater, right? Oh, so you, you've got to really like hammer your points and, and, you know, give them the headlines and then try to support it because they're making really significant decisions really fast. And they are beholden to this thing called standards and goals. It means I've got to get the case through the system in a right. certain time frame. And as a judge, they're being evaluated. Right. By how, how quickly they move things on. Right. And whether it's in compliance with standards and goals. So, so they're, you know, again, they try their best and I, I give them a lot of credit. Um, but you know, it's a very difficult for, for, for a litigant, for parents, uh, and the impact on children, it's a very difficult thing, you know, in terms of having to go through this. I also think. In a typical case, would you then like really try to tell, you know, the clients that like how many variables there are that are not in your control and that you would try to help them to settle the case? I mean, it, you know, in the majority of cases, is that what you would do? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah. a big part of my job with clients is uh, client management and, and setting client expectations. Yeah. From very and, then, and then talking to the other lawyer and hopefully they're reasonable and they well, can. Yeah, it's a very good point because that yeah. I just described, um, you know, I have enough experience. So I knew this was the possibility and probability. Right. So I called up the lawyer the day before and said, hey, um, what's going on? You got any you got any issues you want to talk about? You know, because otherwise they wouldn't tell you and then you get sandbagged, right. get on the record and all of a sudden, like, hey, I got five issues. Bah, 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 bah. Right. You're trying to deal with this stuff. Right. So I know that. I know that certain lawyers will try to sandbag you on the record. Right. So what I did is I just called up this lawyer and said, what's up? You know, like, uh, do you have any issues you want to talk about? And he was like, well, I guess I can tell you now, you know, reluctantly, very sheepishly telling me is like, oh, here are the issues. So at least I had an opportunity to talk to my client, and say, hey, uh, the lawyer says your husband said this is what's what's your response. So I was all ready, you know. So the the, the whole point is, you know, you got to be as a lawyer, you got to be prepared and with experience, you know, you should really be able to understand like how things could go sideways, how it could really just go bad, you know. So what what personally has drawn you to this crazy work of um, helping families yeah. who are in conflict and transition? Right. Uh, so, you know, we we attended the same law school. So I think the push for our law school was to push people into corporate law, really. And I had no interest, I think. You know, I, I had no, I, I, I'm saying I think that our school tried to push people. Yeah, people. I think that's true, right. right. So for me, I had no interest at all. Like my motivating and continues to be my motivating uh, um, force is to help people through a difficult process, right? I never really wanted to, you know, uh, you know, work for corporate law or even work at the DA's office or anything like that. I really just wanted to help people um, and, and use my skills as an attorney to help people. And, and that's why I started out in the child abuse area. You know, just as an aside, just on a short Judge Judy note, um, the reason that she got the, the, um, the TV show 
was because 60 Minutes, there was an article in the newspaper about her and 60 Minutes did a piece on her and they actually focused on my team as lawyers and our interaction with her um, during that period of time. And then, you know, some producer said, hey, she'd be great on TV. And she's That's exactly, you know, aside, she was exactly the way she is on TV yeah. has been in, in, in re, as a real judge. She used to put on the robe and say, this robe gives me special powers, you know? So, um, you know, so, so what motivated me was that really, it was to help people. And even now, what I tell people is, you know, I'm here to assist you through a difficult process, use my skill and expertise and experience to help you go from point A, which is where they are now, which could be anywhere, really. It could be, I'm just thinking about it. I'm already in it, where it's post-judgment, you know, I need to modify or violate, there's a violation, and get them through the process with the least amount of trauma, toxicity, expense, efficiency, and help them, you know, and I'm, it's, it's hard because it's a real burnout job, but I've been doing this for 30 years and you always try, you know, it's difficult because you try to empathize with them and keep that level of empathy that, you know, this is really even difficult clients because, you know, I have a lot of difficult clients, you know, because, and I, I understand it. They're going through, they bring whatever yeah, they're going, they do through, they're going through one of the hardest things in their lives. So they Absolutely. might be difficult. And then a couple of years later, they're transformed. Yep. And I, and I've been, I've gone through a divorce myself and I know how difficult it is, you know, but I always, I tell my clients, you know, um, you know, keep, keep trying, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you can still find love, you know, after a divorce and right. not the end, but you know, it is extremely difficult. It's really hard. And yeah, that's kind of, you know, Rachel, that's really my, my motivation at this point. And also, you know, the other piece of it is I have a strong, very strong sense of, fairness. Like I think, and I think that comes from my parents. I think it comes from, you know, the era in which I grew up, like the cynical seventies, you know, with the Watergate, Vietnam war, you know, all Nixon, all that stuff, you know, where you didn't tr trust people, but you really want to have a sense of fairness in the process. And what motivates me most is when I, you know, like you, when you talked about the miscarriage of justice and really I work best for, for those people you know, who are just, who I feel like, wow, this is, re they're really getting screwed here. So that yeah, was, And you that want was to try to right the wrong. Yeah, exactly. Right the wrong. And that, yeah. that's, kinda, you know, again, over the course of these many years, uh, I, I've focused on that and really been able to hone in on that value as something that's really um, uh, the, the dear, dear to me and yeah. motivates me on even getting over like the, the, how difficult this job really is. And it really is a very difficult job. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But it's it's always uh, interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it, it's extremely interesting. Yeah, that's the other piece of it. That, 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 when you say like why why do this? If you're interested in people, right? Yeah. Them, um, I, I love you know I, I I love hearing about how people have structured their lives. Who you know how you deal with your own reality. Not even just with the difficulties of going through this process, whether it be divorce, separation, you know, but just like the the you know and i respect you know how people deal with their own existence you know and right right and, and that kind of motivates me it's like wow that's it's interesting kind of, it's kind of fascinating i mean i have to say i feel like honored to be let into their lives and to hear their you know to hear how they structured things and their hopes yeah. for the future and you know trying to figure out what's the best way to get them to that you know get them through this transition and right and um, we both hear so much 
perfect. I know. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just endlessly fascinating. I mean, I really find that like every family is different. It's kind of yeah. amazing. Yeah. It, it is interesting that way because, you know, they're all kind of um, permutations of, of similar issues, you know, you know, and, and, but when you get into it, it's so unique to these individuals and, and everything that goes on and the dynamic of relationships is just so fascinating to me. Yeah. It's so fascinating. It is, and yeah. in mediation, I see both of them. So I kind of get like a fuller, you know, right. but sometimes I'm like amazed, like they're doing something that to me seems crazy, but they're like both doing, you know, they're like, of course, this is how we're raising our kids. And I go, why are they getting divorced? Like, how are they ever going to find another person who matches them? Right. Because they're both crazy in the same oh, way, you know? We, we have an expression, elephants don't marry giraffes. That's right. That's right. right. So, so that, you know, yeah. if you get so, down to um, Just two more questions. Um, how many, uh, like, how many attorneys do you have now in your firm? Like, right. if somebody comes to the firm, law firm of John Yakos, do they right. get John Yakos or do they get... Uh, no, no, they get me. They get me if they want me. Um, you know, I had, a, had someone ask me that same question just yesterday. Um, my firm currently is two lawyers. It's me and my partner, Sherry Bornstein, who came from Family Kind. She's a mediator herself. She's a collaborative lawyer. Right. I know Sherry from the collaborative. Right. Right. She's great. She She's has great. Like yeah. over 30 years experience. Yeah. Uh, we, everything in our firm is transparent. Um, so we all kind of share cases, but you do, you know, you can go to one of the attorneys. We had a third attorney. We're going to be hiring a third attorney um, because uh, it's good to have a third attorney. And right. we have two ed, uh, legal assistants, one uh, with a, a lot of experience who's been with me for, you know, over seven years and another one who's relatively new, but has an MBA. So she is uh, someone who has got a lot of smarts and is really a great person and a great addition to the firm. Um, and we're expanding, you know, so. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really and great. And then um, we're going to have your contact information on the show notes, but anything great. you want to say about how people can reach you? Yeah, I think the best way to reach us is to call us, 212-587-9560. Uh, you could also email me, john, J-O-H-N, at yakoslaw, that's all one word, dot com. So it's Y-A-C, as in Charlie, O-S, Sam, law.com so john at yakoslaw.com is a good way to reach me too and if you can't find him just shoot me an email and yeah. i'll give you his contact i'm easy to find my name is fairly unique so yes uh, you know so you All can right, get well this has been a pleasure we've covered so much so much information um and if anyone listeners have questions you can um shoot those to us as well and uh it was really fun john and um, oh rachel this is great i really yeah. appreciate it uh, I, I, you know, I feel like we could have talked another hour, but oh, yeah, absolutely. it's time to end. 100%. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Okay. Um, thank and you. Thanks to all those listening, watching. Um, and remember, keep your kids in mind. Absolutely. Thank you, Rachel. Bye-bye.